Thanks, team. Go ahead and take a seat. Welcome to church. My name is John, and I serve as the pastor here at CityGate. So today's your first Sunday. We usually say every Sunday is someone's first Sunday, so you're welcome here. You're in the right place. There really is no better place to be. Amen? You don't know it yet, but I, th I hope you'll figure it out. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's actually the fourth book of your New Testament, so it's towards the skinny side of your Bible. Uh, if you reach like Acts, Romans, you've gone too far. So you got to go back the other way. If you have a phone, you can download the ESV Bible app. You can just oh, turn on a Bible. In fact, actually, it's pretty easy. If you don't have a Bible, the Sky Bible behind me will take care of your needs, so don't worry about that. Uh, this morning, I want to draw our attention to what may be considered um, the most miraculous thing that Jesus did while he was alive on the earth. He performed many miracles, but there's one that kind of stands out over all the rest. This story is about Jesus, a few women named Martha and Mary, their brother Lazarus, a crowd of people, and an empty tomb. And I've chosen this story to preach on in between, you know, Christmas and whatever comes next year, because it helps us understand fully the story of David and Goliath that we've been traveling through with Christmas. In that story, David and Goliath, God uses a seemingly insignificant shepherd boy to defeat a great enemy. At the time, the nation of Israel was faced with a great enemy, and they were certainly going to die or be enslaved, or their life as they knew it was over. And that's how we prepared our hearts for Christmas, realizing that someone greater than David would come and shepherd his people and conquer a great enemy. And we do know, as people, maybe you don't know, I'm about to tell you if you don't know, uh, our greatest enemy is death. Death is the last enemy. Death is what we're all afraid of. And because of that fear of death, all sorts of things happen in our lives. We do certain things and say certain things, and, and then these other fears pop up. And I would say the, the thing that everyone is most afraid of is death. So in this story, Jesus raises a man from the dead. So you and I would believe in him as the only son of God, the one who was sent to offer us eternal life for anyone who would believe. Think of it like this. In the story of David and Goliath, David defeats the enemy that Israel most feared. And then in, in his person, while Jesus was alive, some thousand years later after David defeats Goliath, there is a man who claims to be God, and in front of a crowd of people, he overcomes one of their greatest fears, death. But in today's story, you know, not like David and Goliath, it's sometimes hard to understand how the impact of Goliath's fall and David's, you know, conquering of that great enemy really applies to the overall gospel, overall good news for us here today. Well, I believe that story really connects well when Jesus brings his friend out of a tomb. Because we see in that very moment that Jesus holds the power over death. And David defeated Goliath, but Jesus comes later, and he himself holds the power over death. And he puts this power on display precisely so we would believe. And then by believing that we would receive life in his name. Now the book we're in, the Gospel of John, the Gospel just means good news. The good news of John as recorded by John. He was a disciple. He followed Jesus. He was around the entire time. In fact, John was called the one whom Jesus loved. So he was very close to the person of Jesus. He also authors four other books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which is in, towards the end of your Bible, and the book of Revelation, which is the scary book nobody wants to talk about. But he, he also authors that book. 
In fact, if you look at his gospel, the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters of this book record many, many miracles. That's, that's why he writes. He keeps recording miracle after miracle after miracle. And this is what he says in John chapter 20. This is why he does it. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that means Savior, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why this entire book is written, all 21 chapters of it. John tells us, I'm writing this so that when you read it, you would believe, and that by believing, the promise of God is that you would have life in the name of Jesus Christ. That's been my prayer for you this week as I've prepared to help us understand a little bit more about what the story teaches. So I'm just going to get right into it. There are 44 verses of this story, and you all know me, well, most of you do, and I'm not going to read 44 straight verses because that'd be like, you know, a slow death. So I'll read a little bit, then I'll stop, then I'll read a little bit more because out loud reading is not necessarily my forte. So I'm going to start John chapter 11, verse 1, and I will stop where I need to stop. That's better, right? It's not hitting my face anymore. Okay, good. All right. Merry Christmas. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, so they sent word to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, that's like teacher, you know. Teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Uh, That means kill you. And you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. Now, verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. If the guy is just sick, he's going to be fine. He's going to get better. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples in his best Eeyore voice, let us go so we also may die with him. Now this is the first part of the story where I like to pause because it provides us with a very important truth, maybe the most important theme of the entire Bible, all 66 books written by 40 different authors over a time of about 2,000 years, all speak about the exact same thing, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what your entire Bible is about. And there's one theme that is woven throughout the entire Bible. That is the theme of the glory of God. And Jesus says it himself. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal my friend because you're about to see the glory of God. Even in another psalm, which is basically a, it's a book of poems, 
It says this in, verse, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So even when you look up, you see the glory of God. You see the awesomeness of God. You see the artistic ability of God. You see the power of God. If you look up in the stars on a clear night, you were just overwhelmed. Most of us are, even if we don't like staring at stars. We're still quite overwhelmed at how vast and how amazing this universe is. Well, the Bible says all of that points to how glorious how perfect, how amazing, how mighty God is. He says the same thing here. This whole entire event, friends, is about the glory of God. This is what's going to happen. Now, Psalm 19, verse 1 is just one verse, but throughout your Bible, this theme grabs our attention time and time again, the glory of God. In fact, you can, we can go a little deeper with that thought. The reason this church is here, this local church, or any church even exists around the world, uh, the reason you are a Christian we're not a Christian. The reason the gospel must go out so people can believe it is because of the glory of God. He gets glory through all things. The Bible also says, here's kind of a warning for us as well about the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that we were created to glorify God. We were created in his image to give him glory, to worship him, but we've fallen short. We've missed the mark. You've screwed up, just deal with it. I've screwed up, I'm trying to deal with it, you know. And we're all sinners. You're not surrounded by people who have ever claimed to be perfect. If they have, they're wrong. We're all sinners. Every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live is born with a sinful nature. And because of that, we've fallen short of his glory. Our sinfulness does not glorify God. And earlier, John wrote that the word became flesh, that Jesus came in the flesh. That's Christmas. We just did that. You missed it, but you can come back next Christmas. Some of you are already planning for next Christmas. I know who you are. But the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So we've fallen short of God's glory. God's glory is all around us, but then God's glory came to seek us. He came face to face with us in our world, and he dwelled among us. That's the person of Jesus Christ. Our sinfulness excludes us from God's glory. God's good and right judgment of our sin will also give him glory. And the salvation of sinners, the salvation of you and I and anyone else who would believe in Christ, will reveal his glory. It's all about God's glory. All of the fame, all is for, it's all for his fame, it's all for his name, it's all about God. And even today, we think about this story. Jesus says, even this sickness of a close friend is for what? The glory of God. I want to remind you, maybe it is encouraging to you, that God knows of everything that has ever plagued you or ever will plague you. He knows of your illness. He knows what is attacking you. He knows what your body is going through. He understands every fear you have. He understands every ounce of pain you experience. He actually knows, I believe, he knows the amount of tears you have shed over your illness or your disease or the cancer. The God of glory knows the pain of your life and he understands the pain. Yet, he is still using that pain for his glory. There's another book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians. It's a letter written to the Corinth church. It's an ancient church. 
And the author of that letter says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, some of you say, well, my affliction isn't light. That's quite offensive. You don't know me. You're calling my ordeal light? I don't feel like that. And I know you don't feel like that. But let me encourage you. What Paul is saying, that's the author who wrote that. What he is saying, in effect, he's saying this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've given him your life, if you trust in him, if you believe in him, this is the worst your life is ever going to get. No matter what happens in this life, around this world. Think about that. This is the worst. Even if it's worst moments, it's the worst it's going to get. That's it. It only goes up from here. Not meaning health and wealth and everything's going to be fine, meaning there's a life after this one. Because the Bible says when the Christian dies, they will see their Savior face to face. But now, with that statement comes a warning to those who don't know Christ. If you do not worship Jesus as God, if you have not given him your life, if you don't trust him for your salvation, this is the best your life is ever going to get. The things that you experience on this earth, half of them, let's just be honest, we don't like. Because we don't like half the stuff that happens to us. Think about it that way. It's the best it's ever going to get for you. Which is why I'm going to invite you to believe in Christ today. And I'm only doing it because Jesus is doing it. So I'm, I'm just the messenger. Now in this story, everyone, if you look, look at that first part that we read, everyone was worried about this illness, this illness that was plaguing Lazarus, enough to, to send for Jesus who was far away. And rightly so, because it seemed as though this illness was more than a common cold, more than a really bad fever. This illness may just lead to the death of the friend of Jesus. But you see, Jesus, the God-man, the one who had already at this point in his life turned water into wine, the man who had healed a young child from a really vicious fever, the man who had allowed a a lame man to walk after 38 years, a man who fed about 5,000 men plus women and children with a boy's sack lunch, the man who already walked on water, the man who was already said, I'm God, it's a pretty big statement, he doesn't see it the same way that people see it. They're worried, but he knows this sickness exists for a reason, and I'm going to show you that very reason, and that very reason is God's glory. This is what he says. This is my paraphrase. This sickness is doing exactly what God wants it to do. This sickness is known by God. It's not like Lazarus got sick and God thought, where'd that come from? That's not how it worked. God governed the sickness, and we will see that the sickness will be used to display his glory. Friends, life as we know it will not unfold the way we expect it to unfold. And all of us can understand that. Whether you're young or old, life has not always worked out the way you had planned it would work out. But let me tell you, the truth is it really doesn't need to. It doesn't need to. Because we don't exist for our own pleasure. Now, I want to be somewhat offensive and encouraging all at the same time. It's kind of the curse of the preacher. That just comes with the job. A little bit offensive, a little bit encouraging, but not offensive in like the crude way. I simply mean to say, you exist to glorify God. And God will get the glory no matter what happens in your life. 
Now, here's why that is offensive to you. It should be. Because this means our self-absorbed approach to life is all but a lie. Now, you're saying, you call me self-absorbed? Well, yeah, I am, because I am, too. I'm not better than you because I'm just a little bit higher. I'm not better than you because I have a microphone. In fact, the preacher is told to be lifted up so people can hit him easier, you know. The thing is, we're all sinners, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and life as we know it is not about us. How often do we get trapped in thinking that? I know it happens to me quite a bit. That's why it's offensive to know that God is going to be glorified no matter what happens in this life. But here's why it's encouraging. Because there is a God in heaven who really is there. And he's concerned about his glory. And if he wasn't concerned about his glory, he, I, I can tell you he wouldn't be concerned about me. That's how that works together. So in this story, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, don't worry. And all of his people are probably wondering, I thought you liked this guy. What's the deal? And then with his best Eeyore impression, Thomas says, let's go. I guess we'll go and die. You know, he's that guy. He's that friend. You guys know what I'm talking about. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, well, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I, I know that's always been the promise of God. Jesus, I understand that. What I'm saying is, if you were here, you could have healed the sickness before it got to this point, you know, like you did with those other people. But, but even so, even so, I, I know that you're God in the flesh, so whatever you ask of God, he's going to give you. Martha, this, this isn't going to end in death. Oh, oh, I know, Jesus, because I know that God has always promised a resurrection. I get it. I, I know the promises of God. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That means Savior, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see what Jesus is doing. He has the glory of God in mind. This is why he waits two days before even leaving to go travel probably a few days to see his friend. So then he arrives, and he meets the first sister. And it's basically a, if only you were here. You could have helped him like you helped that boy. Remember? That boy was real sick, and he told his dad he'd be fine, and he was, and he, he got healed. But even then, I, I get it. I know that we'll see my brother Lazarus again because God's people will be resurrected from the dead. That's the promise. One important understanding of our Bible as far as, you know, the whole entirety of it is, is we can get from this one verse that God's people have always believed in a resurrection. It's always been a promise of God. And this helps us. Because just as David defeated Goliath, the greatest enemy to the, Israel, the nation of Israel, 
So God is going to defeat the great enemy of death. And death is scary. That's why it's an enemy. And death is finite. And it's there. And it's coming. And we've said before, death bats a thousand percent. One out of one person's will die. It never misses. It's a great enemy. But God's people have always expected to be raised from the dead to be with their God. And here's why. Because the world as we know it is not the way it's supposed to be. It's okay to be sad and worried and angry and have all those emotions all at the same time when you observe the world or live the life that God has given you. That's completely fine. You should be angry at sin. You should be angry that disease exists. You should be angry at the evil that you observe in this world. And here's why you should be angry. Because this is not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks where let's say you have a friend who doesn't believe in God and they go, I just don't believe in God. I get it. It's good for some people, right? We're very nice in culture today, so you can do what you like. It's okay. I'll still be your friend. But God isn't for me. There is no God. It's just, we're just here, we're, right? What they're saying is we're just bags of bouncing bones. We're just hanging out, banging into each other. But then they can barely stomach when a loved one passes. And we see in that very moment that if they truly believed we were just here to exist, they would not be affected by death. But friends, we are, aren't we? That points to the evidence that we are here for so much more. That there is no way death was part of the original plan. And this is what Jesus is about to show all the people who are observing Lazarus being sick and dying. You see, Martha is saying, but I know whatever you ask. God will give it to you. Well, why are they saying that? Well, they've already saw the power that Jesus had over the physical world. There was a man who was lame for 38 years, and Jesus walked up to him and said, get up and walk, and the guy walked. They saw his power over creation when he created food out of nothing and fed up to 15,000 people. They saw his power over sickness when he healed that boy that I've been talking about. But it seems as though they did not expect power over death in the here and now when he was alive. You see how that works? She says, I know you have power over death, and I know God's going to raise us, but never does it cross her mind to say, I know you can raise the dead. Just do it now because you love this man, and he's your friend. He never says, she never says that. And friends, this is what we need to be reminded of. We're Martha right now. Just be Martha, right? Just, I think he's sitting there. Just be Martha. Sorry, Matt. He's running sound. Sorry. Just be Martha. Because even though she has saw Jesus with her own eyes, she just put him into a box and what he could do and what he could not do. How many times do we do that? And that's why I, I want to encourage you to read your Bible, reflect on who God is, because every time you do, you will go, oh, right. I'm pretty sure I just downplayed God. And that's what Martha's doing right now. And that's when Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection, I, and, and I am the life. Well, this teaching is all new. This phrase is somewhat new to the ears of those who are following Jesus. He has told people he can forgive sin, which he did. And they knew that was only something God could do in the moment. There is a story where he forgives this guy's sin, and vocally, he says, your sin is forgiven, and people wig out. 
because no man can forgive the sin of another man. Only that can come from God. So they've heard him do that. They've heard with his mouth that he was the bread in this Old Testament story that came down from heaven to nourish God's people. And he shows up and says, that's me. I'm here to nourish the soul of God's people. And they just get confused by that. But then he says, I am the resurrection. This is pushing the boundaries of what their understanding is of Jesus Christ. You are the resurrection? Wait, no, a resurrection is coming. (laughs) Right, I am the resurrection. Think about it this way. It's one thing for even us today to know God, thank him for the things of this life, right? The food that we eat, the shelter we have, the clothes, the warmth, all the things we often take for granted. It's one thing to thank God for that. And then it's another thing to thank God for healing our bodies, which we pray for, especially if your body is racked with pain or disease or cancer or an illness, maybe like Lazarus's. That's one thing to thank him and then to trust that if he wanted to, he would heal. There's a, confidence, there's a confidence in that. God's people have that confidence. But it's a completely other thing to lay down your head at night knowing that if you were to die in your sleep, you'd be raised from the dead. That's a whole other level of hope and trust. That's a whole other kind of level of hope and trust. That's a whole other level of knowledge knowing that it just doesn't end with the thankfulness of food and heat and air conditioning. It's so much more because he is the resurrection. Now, what I also like about this exchange with Martha is that he invites her to believe. And I really appreciate this because that's all he does. Do you believe? Knowing what you've seen, knowing what you've heard, do you believe? And friends, I don't think there's a Sunday that goes by that we don't ask you, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he accomplished all that he accomplished as recorded in the Bible? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is not just some figure we put on a cross to decorate or some profane name we throw out when we're frustrated? Do you believe he was more than just a good teacher? Because the truth is, he was either God or he is a lunatic. And if he's a lunatic, there are two billion people worshiping a crazy man. And that would be the worst manipulation ever in in human history. Do you believe? That's as simple as it gets with Martha. You see, the gospel, which is the good news of the Bible, the good news of salvation through Jesus, should always be presented in that way. Here's the truth of Jesus. Do you believe? We often fail to keep it that simple. Because belief is where it starts. All right, so, so you're at Citygate Church, and I'm so thankful you're here. And never were you, will you hear anyone from this very position, whether it's me or somebody else preaching or teaching the Bible, ever invite you into a religious ceremony so you could be saved. We're never going to break out the really cool fancy robes to put them on, even though some of you want that. We're not going to give you a list of moral standards to accomplish so that when you're good enough, will invite you into the family of God. The Bible never does that. The Bible says, here's the truth about your sinfulness and about God's holiness and about the person of Jesus Christ and what he came to do to restore us to God, to forgive us of everything we've ever done and forgive us of everything we ever will do. 
And all you have to do to receive this gift is to believe and to trust. That's it. Well, let's not pass over his invitation for Martha to believe just like that, just to read it like it's a story. This is an invitation for every single day or every Sunday. And in fact, it's an invitation for your friends each and every day. Some of you say, I just, I'm not really great at talking to people about Jesus, so I don't. No more, all right? I'm about to equip you to be the best person ever to share Jesus. You tell them about the man who saved your life, and then you say, do you believe? You open the Bible and you read with them and you say, do you believe that Jesus did these things? You need to continually invite people in to believe. Verse 28. When she said this, this is Martha now, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, that's Jesus. The teacher, you know, Jesus is here and he's calling you, which we don't know exactly. I think Martha was playing a little bit here. But regardless, that's not part of the sermon. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going out to the tomb to weep there. A little bit of Jewish background. In the West, we tend to bury people quick and get it over with, and even at a wake or a funeral, we tend to be very polite. We whisper our condolences to people. We don't want to make too much of a scene. It's just kind of a cultural thing. Back then, I think we all would have been very uncomfortable because for about a week, they traveled from the house to the tomb, wailing and screaming and crying as loud as they could. They were very open with their emotions. That's what's going on. And the more people you had crying and wailing, the more people that were screaming, meant the more important that person was that died, the more loved that person was. That's what's happening. Everybody around Mary thought she must be going to weep and wail again. Let's go with her. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, wait, um, out of all the things that Jesus does and all the actions that he takes, when you read your Bible and look at the way he responds to people in their time of need or in their time of sinfulness, he leads with compassion. Never forget that. He leads with compassion. Which I believe is why the church is called to restore people in gentleness when they are stuck in sin. More about that later. Not today, you know, sometime. So when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He had compassion. And he said, where have you laid him? Tell me where Lazarus is. Tell me where my friend is. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He sat. That which he had came to reverse has claimed another life right before his eyes. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What are they doing again? We've seen him do miraculous things. Couldn't he, if he cared about this guy so much, he's crying. Why didn't he just heal him? Why did death have to happen? Well, we know the entire story, don't we? We get a little bit narcissistic that way. We start to judge people. But we know the whole story because we know that the story is for God's glory. And only the people in the beginning knew that from Jesus. He said, this is not going to end in death. It's for God's glory. So just wait and see how amazing God is. Verse 38. 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. In the King James Version, I think it said he stinketh. I mean, he was really dead. Really, like, they're saying, I mean, Jesus, we love your compassion, but the guy's, he's been dead. And we know what happens to bodies that pass. They, they break down. Don't open that tomb. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, this is a great prayer. This is a great, um, what Jesus is about to say is just amazing. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may know, that they may believe you have sent me. Right before all this goes down with Lazarus, Jesus gets in some really bad trouble because he pretty much tells the uber-religious people that he's God. He said, me and the Father, the Father you worship, we're one. We're the same. And they don't really like that. And now what does he say? I know you've heard me. I already know what I've been sent here to do at this tomb. I know that you hear me cry out to you so I can raise Lazarus. I know that when I do that, people's hearts are going to be turned towards you and they're going to see how amazing you are. See, I already know that. But what I'm actually doing, God, is I want to say this out loud. So that these people with hard hearts and closed off minds who are only focusing on the gifts that I've been giving them will actually be in awe of the one who's providing the gifts. I'm saying this out loud so that everyone believe that you sent me, that I am exactly who you said I was. I'm saying this out loud so that the people who've been waiting on me for 3,000 plus years will now know that I'm here and I've come to do what you sent me to do. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Jesus Christ came to not only reverse the curse of our sin, which is true. Many of us are enslaved to sin. We actually hate the sins that we do like 10 seconds after we do them. And then we live with guilt and shame for a long time. We actually involve ourselves in things that we actually hate. Why do we keep doing it? It's because we're enslaved to it. We're in bondage. And a relationship with Jesus Christ frees us from that bondage. That is true about what Jesus, does, what Jesus did. But he also came to completely eliminate the sting of death. Not just forgive sin but reverse the curse of death that has plagued humanity since Adam and Eve. Again, it's one thing to be thankful for one thing, right? Thankful for the, the stuff we take for granted, but it's a whole other thing to realize I'm not going to die? That should blow our mind. Jesus Christ is the God-man who offers the gift of the resurrection. Now, there's plenty of great things that accompany the Christian life. There are the spirit of God, a spirit of joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, all those 
works of God's spirit in your life, they begin to take form in your life. It takes time for some of us. I mean, some of us just grow like crazy, and some of us, you know, we take half steps at a time. Either way, we're good with it. There's, there's many perks, I guess you could say, to the Christian life. We're one with God. We're not guilty of our sin. But my goodness, to say that we will never die, that is just simply amazing. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Praise God, right? People believed. They were saved. And in in that very moment, they believed they would also be resurrected. It just took that very moment. But there's always a dark side to this stuff. But some of them went to the Pharisees. Those are like the herbal religious people. You know, there's like really nice, really religious people, and there's really annoying really religious people. Well, they're like the annoying ones, okay? So some of them went to the really annoying uber-religious people and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. They gathered more of their uber-religious people, and they had a conversation. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. At least they're giving him credit for it now. In the past, they pretty much called him a demon. But now they're like, well, (laughs) he just brought someone back from the dead. I think we have to give in. He's doing some amazing stuff. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, yeah. That's kind of the point. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. You see, the the Jews were under the authority of the Roman Empire, and pretty much Rome allowed them to operate. As long as there was peace, Rome let anybody operate that they conquered. They just said, don't mess with each other. Worship your own gods over there. Worship your own gods over there. Just don't fight. Once riots start happening and fighting, we're just going to take you out. And what are they afraid of? We have this religious system in place, but Jesus came, and now everybody's following him, and they're making a big deal about it, and the Romans are going to get wind that there's sort of this this faction between us, and they're going to come, and they're going to wipe us out. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up, and he said, You know nothing at all. That's very friendly. Thank you. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We're about to see that is a very significant statement. You know what he's saying? Just kill the guy. Why should all of us perish by the hands of the Romans when we can just get rid of this Jesus guy and all this is going to go away? The sheep are going to be scattered. His followers will walk away. Get rid of the head and everything else is going to take care of itself. What does the Bible say? Verse 51. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered around. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. There is one very important thing that we could remember that I think would be an encouragement to us. That the schemes of evil men will never stop the salvation of God's people. It never has, and it never will. Here's a guy who says, just kill him. (laughs) Why are you guys sitting around talking about it? We know what to do. Just get rid of him, and everything's going to be fine. And what he's saying is exactly what God wants to do. Because God takes what men means for evil and he turns it into good. And so this is exactly what's going to happen. The high priest 
in an evil way, tells people what really is going to happen. That Jesus will die. He will be arrested by lawless men. He will be lied about. They will put him on a trial that's all false, all fake. And they will make him carry his own cross to his crucifixion. Soon after Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, they will put a cross on his back and he will carry it to the point where they will execute him. The God-man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the very Son of God, will endure more physical and emotional pain than any one of us could ever imagine. And even in those moments, when all of his followers probably thought they won, evil won. They killed the Savior. We thought he was going to gather us, and we thought he was going to be our king, and, and we thought we'd be safe under him. We thought we were going to rule with him. It's not going to happen anymore because they, they just killed him. In that moment, it seemed as though the darkness of man's sinfulness won. But really what it did is it just committed suicide. Because when they killed the Son of God, they followed God's plan exactly. And three days later, God would raise Jesus from the dead just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Proving that he is exactly who he said he was. Proving that there is really a resurrection. Proving the very words of Jesus' own mouth. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, what I want you to believe today is that there is a God you are not it, right? That's like the first step. You're not God. You're a created person. God is the uncreated one. And because of our sinful nature, meaning we don't like him, we hate him, we hate his word, we hate his laws, we hate everything about him. We rebel against him all the time. Because of that rebellion, we can't have a relationship with him. And because we can't have a relationship with him, we're far away from him. And because we're far away from him, the sinner is his enemy. And there will come a day where this, this life ends and we will stand before him face to face and we will be judged for our sin. Here's what I'm asking you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was judged in your place for your sin or not? Because every single person here and every single person on this entire planet, every single person who has been born, every single person who will be born will either be judged for their sin or will believe that Jesus was judged for their sin. There is no other way. And because of that, if you have faith and trust in Christ, you're sinless all of a sudden, just like that. That's the free gift of salvation. God doesn't look at you as a sinner who's about to get his good and righteous judgment. He looks at you as his son, as his daughter. He, that was our prayer time. He looks at you as righteous, all holy, good, perfect, clean, that's who you are in the eyes of God at this very moment if you believe in him. And with that belief comes an inheritance. You know, not like the big fancy one you're hoping your parents are leaving you. Huh, I feel really bad for my kids. But not, not those kind. I'm talking about an eternal inheritance, one that can never be taken away from you. And Jesus says, all that the Father sent to me, I'm going to get. And when they come to me, I'm going to get them. And no one's going to take this away from me. Christian, you can never, ever again you will never, ever again lay your head on your pillow worried that your body will not be raised from the dead. It's your inheritance. It's secured by the Holy Spirit. God has done all the work, and it's for his glory that he's done that in your life. So many 
things of the Christian life are amazing, but there is one that stands out. You will be resurrected. So no matter what plagues your life today, right, like think about the sickness and the things that rack the body and the brain and the mind. They can have their moment today because those very things are going to lead you to an eternity with Christ. They may win the battle, but God has already won the war. God has once again, just as David defeated Goliath, sent Jesus Christ to defeat our greatest enemy in death. And so that's my invitation to you today. Do you believe that what was just said is true? The Bible says if you believe in your heart, like if you really mean it, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to lead us through communion.